0: What is greatness? How does one gauge grandeur or define divinity? Can you evaluate the essence of excellence? Is majesty merely a measure of might, power, prestige, or popularity? Can splendor simply be summed up by social status? Or might there be something more creative than the canned conclusion our culture has come to? Who could demonstrate a life defining true greatness? Who might elevate above the awe of angels, look beyond the limits of the law, and transcend the truth of Torah? Who might move beyond the miracles of Moses and precede the prized promised land? Who might surpass the position of the priests modeling the immorality of Melchizedek? Whose sacrifice could solidify sustaining sanctification, whose covenant could fully capture the criteria of perfection. Who can transmit transformation through trust, fabricate faithfulness, and bring life that multiplies life from dust? This is the book of Hebrews.
1: Happened in Mosaic. How are y'all? Good good. good, good. My name is Josh Taylor. I am one of the elders uh, at the Winter Garden campus primarily. <clears throat> I'm grateful to be here with y'all tonight. Uh, Renaud, uh, if you know who Renault is, he's the lead pastor of Mosaic Church. He was scheduled to be here tonight and he called me two days ago um, and he's been battling a cold chest stuff going on. And so he called me two days ago and said, Hey, I need you to preach on Sunday. And uh, I said, uh, okay, two days, um, no. <laughs> um, so, you know, of course I'm like, oh my goodness, how am I gonna pull this off in two days? And so, um, so you know, it was quite the thing that happened uh, right after that phone call. I didn't tell him no, I told him yes, that's why I'm here. <clears throat> but uh, very clearly heard the spirit of God whisper inside me. And that's quite a thing. When the spirit of God talks to you, it's so cool. Um, And he said, Josh, if, if church is like a Netflix subscription where we pay some money, right? And then we come and we consume and we hear a concert that is performed for you. And we get to hear an inspiring message that launches us into our week to sustain us. and, And if that's what it is, if we are consumers in this, then we are in big trouble, But if we are family, and I don't know so many of you here, and yet if you know Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's crazy cool, right? And so we together have an opportunity to make much of Jesus together to be able to say to "No, yes, stay home and rest your voice right? And to say to Danny, yes, you need time to go be away with your wife, right? And be still and know that he is God. So we want you to have the freedom to do that. So I'm really excited to be here with you tonight. And in this challenge together of, for us to make much of Jesus together, I don't know that there's a better passage in all of scripture the passage we're gonna look at tonight. We're gonna be in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter one. We're gonna be looking at verses three through 14 together. <clears throat> and one of the things about Hebrews, there's two things really that are super vital when it comes to understanding what the author intended to communicate when he wrote. And this is true, of all of scripture, but context is king. I tell you that in seminary. Context is absolutely vital to understand what the author intends to communicate, which obviously God wrote by the inspiration of men, but it's God's letter to us. So we wanna understand what he intended to communicate to us. And context is vital. And that's true for every book of scripture, but it's especially true for the book of Hebrews. Here's the way I like to think about it. Suppose I were to write a book about baseball bats, right? And I just call the title Bats. And then I go and take that book after it's published and I go and hand it to a, a cave dweller who's lived 60 years, his entire life in a cave, has no clue about American baseball, but he understands bats that are in a cave, right? So he's reading this book and he's like, bats that are made of wood? Bats that are made of aluminum? That doesn't make any sense. Bats that are three and a half feet long, what? How is that even possible, right? So if we don't understand the context of what this letter is being written in and the historical context and the audience context, all of that matters vitally. And especially with the book of Hebrews, the historical context is really crucial. So as Danny probably talked about last week, the book of Hebrews was written in the 60s, right? Anybody happen to know who was the emperor of Rome in the 60s? It was Nero. And that dude was an evil, evil tyrant. And he hated Christians, hated them, right? In in 64, right? And I'm not talking about like, yo, the 60s, dude, love the 60s. No, not 1960s. We're talking like the 60s, right? <clears throat> right? He, like the, the city of Rome, practically burned to the ground. 70% of the capital of the ruling empire, practically of the whole world, 70% of the cities destroyed. And he blamed the Christians for it. And there were rumors that swirling that he started the fire so that he could have a place to build a palace because it was overcrowded and stuff. And then he blamed the Christians for it. <clears throat> so for you and I, Like you, I guess if we're honest, we really don't understand the kind of persecution that they went through, right? Because for us, like, you know, the air conditioning goes out and we're like, oh, I'm afflicted, you know, and it's like, no, that's not the kind of persecution that we're talking about, right? I mean, we're talking your family being tortured in front of you and killed in front of you. Stuff that made the Nazis look soft. I mean, horrid Things. So the temptation for the Jews in that time to leave Christianity was real, it was real. I mean, when you're going through something like that, all kinds of thoughts go, go through your head and it, it forces us to truly depend on God. There's another piece of context that's really important. So a couple of centuries prior to Jesus being born, I've heard of the Maccabees, Right? So the Maccabees, the family, um, the family name was the Hasmoneans, but their nickname, they were known as the Maccabees, which in Hebrew means hammer, because they were a spicy bunch, right? And under all of this oppression and Greek and then Roman oppression, what what would happen is like the the Roman god pantheon, for example, the reason why they had so many different gods is they would conquer a new territory and they would just bring in that new god into their pantheon of gods, right? They always uh, expected everybody to worship Caesar as god. Well, Jews, uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, there is only one god and it ain't Caesar. We're not doing that. And they were spicy. They fought back. They dropped the hammer, right? And you kind of see this a little bit with Pontius Pilate, right? And when Jesus was being crucified and the, the, the Jews at the time that were crying out for Jesus to be crucified and Pontius Pilate was like, I don't want to do this. This is not my problem. I see nothing wrong with what he's done. But they were getting stirred up and he's like, oh, I want to keep them at bay. So he ended up doing it. And this spicy Hasmonean group kind of gave way into the, the crew that was known as the Zealots at the time, right? And these were like crazy ninja training. You know, they were like ready to join with what they expected to be a military Messiah who would raise up an army. They would go and release themselves from all of this oppressive rule and they would conquer the world and rule together rightly under God. That's what they expected the created order to be. And so it's very tempting. So now put yourself in the shoes of the audience of this letter. They were Jews that believed that Jesus was the Messiah, going through horrid persecution. And the Jews, yes, they were under Roman oppression, but they, because of their spiciness, they had a little bit of a little bit of autonomy in the community. So it would have been a much simpler, easier life to go back to Judaism. And this is the context of the book of Hebrews, writing to say, guys there's nothing to go back to. Everything back there pointed to Jesus anyway. It's always been about Jesus. And later in the book of Hebrews, when it talks about the Old Testament sacrificial system, talks about it being a shadow of the things to come, which would be Jesus. And so here's kind of a, a, a way that might be helpful to think about that. Suppose this stage is a timeline up here where that is, uh, that is the past, the beginning. In the beginning, God created. And then this is eternity in heaven, right? The scripture in Revelation says that there is no sun in heaven because the glory of God lights up the whole place, right? So imagine that light, the glory of God, this light shining back in time, back in history. This is the cross where, where Paul says, in the fullness of time, at exactly the right moment in history, which happened to be right before the temple was destroyed in AD 70, which we're just a few years away from with the book of Hebrews. So this light is shining back and casting a shadow back to the early days, right? So everything, this was just a shadow of what God was ultimately going to do. And what God has done over and over and over again is he uses the created things in the world to teach us about spiritual things. He he creates family order. He creates all of these different things so that we can understand in the spiritual realm what he is accomplishing on our behalf, and we're gonna see that quite a bit in the book of Hebrews. So it was very tempting to go back to Jesus, but Jesus is greater. Not only is he greater, but all of this pointed to him anyway, and not only that, but Jesus ultimately is God. So the author of Hebrews in our passage today is gonna to make much of Jesus. And the way that you can participate in that is asking the Spirit of God, Lord, please open my heart and mind to what you have for me today. I wanna make much of you and I want my heart to fill with you and be made much of you in this time. And there are some warning passages. What Scholars in the book of Hebrews, there are typically some warning passages that scholars tend to call warning passages. I more like to call them encouragement passages to say, hey, Don't go, there's nothing to go back to. There's nothing for you back there. There's nothing there. Stay in, hang in, go another day, take another step, hang in a little bit longer. God's making all things new. He's going to make this right one day. So the other thing, so context is is key. Second thing that's really important in the book of Hebrews because every other passage practically in the book of Hebrews is a quote quote of an Old Testament passage because it's all kind of making sense of what that was. And so it's very easy to get lost in the forest, right? To get lost in the corn maze, if you will, if you don't understand kind of the big picture of where the author is going with all this. Because as you're tracing down all these quotes and you see something quoted in Hebrews and then you go and trace it back and then all of a sudden, like all of these things and these individual statements taken out of context, it can be a little bit confusion. So it's really important from time to time to send the drone up and look down like, oh yes, this is what is happening with this book, right? And so the forest of the book and the purpose of this book, if you'll put that first slide up pretty please, is to say that Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than Torah, greater than Moses, greater than the promised land, greater than the priest, greater than Melchizedek, greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system and greater than the old covenant. All of it pointed to him. And then the forest of our passage today in chapter one, that next slide up is this. As we kind of trace down some of these passages, this is ultimately what the author of Hebrews is saying in our passage today in verses three through 14. In verse five, Jesus is the heir of David. We'll talk about that in just a minute. In verses six through 12, Jesus is God. And in verse 13, Jesus is the Messiah. And what's so incredible about the book of Hebrews is once you study the book of Hebrews and have this with you, it's kind of like having these special magic goggles that allows you to see things that weren't there before. So now with the book of Hebrews in your heart and mind, you get to go back and read the Old Testament and you're like, oh, that's what God was doing. Are you kidding me? That is incredible. It's incredible. So this is going to be a fun book and I encourage you to read it. I encourage you to chase down the quoted scripture passages in the Old Testament. And it's just mind-blowingly extraordinary what God does in this. It's really incredible. So he's the heir of David. He's God in the flesh and he's the Messiah from the Old Testament. So I wanna read the entire passage so we can kind of get that forest before we dive into it. So verse three, We're gonna pick up in the second half of this, but I wanna read the entire verse here. It says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That was covered last week. And now we're picking up with our section this week. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels' winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son... He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will row them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, "'Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet?' Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation?' So angels, it's helpful to understand the role that they've kind of played, how humanity has interacted with them throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Um, They, in any passage where they appear to humans and interact with humans, people tend to be afraid and scared of them. Here's a couple of passages just to give you kind of that picture here. This is from Luke chapter one. This is when uh, John the Baptist was about to be born. Zechariah is his dad and and Zechariah was one of the temple priests and he goes into the temple um, in verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. Luke chapter two. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. I love it when Linus reads that passage. Some, few of you know what I'm referencing. We just came out of Christmas. That's a Christmas passage and Linus from the Peanuts quotes that and it's so good. So an angel is just, it just means literally, it means he, a messenger in Hebrew. So when we talk about evangelism, evangelism, it's, it's somebody who is a messenger bringing the good news. So an angel is just a messenger. So the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is better than the angels is saying that Jesus is better than all the messengers of the past. And we saw that last week in verses one and two and three. So now we're going to be, the author of Hebrews is going to begin to make the case here that Jesus is, better. Jesus is greater. So in verse five, he is the heir of David. As I mentioned to you, God uses the created things of the world and and established some things so that we can understand better kind of what he is doing. Because if we didn't have that stuff and he just tried to teach us spiritual things, it'd be a little bit difficult for us to understand. Well, family order back in that day, the firstborn uh, of the family was the one who inherited the family uh, worth, the family uh, things, right? And so that was the person who kind of had, became the heir of the family. He had rights, righteous status in the family, if you will. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is the heir of David that is referred to. So in verse five, it says, For, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? There's that heir language right there. <clears throat> Today I have begotten you. That's straight from Psalm chapter two. Or again, I will be to him a father. There's that father-son heir uh, relationship and he shall be to me a son. That is 2 Samuel 7. <clears throat> Next, uh, the author of Hebrews is gonna make the case that Jesus is God. And this is really kind of the mic drop moment of the passage because he's going to continue to make a case that Jesus is better than Moses and better than all these other things. And if Jesus was just a man, and they said, Jesus is better than Moses, Jesus is just a man, Jesus is better than Moses, people might argue with him. Might say, no, I don't think so. Moses is a pretty incredible dude. Right, So the author's of bypassing all of that and just said, Jesus is God, mic drop. This is incredible. <clears throat> Watch what he does here, verse six. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, if you were a Hebrew reading this letter <clears throat> in the audience, hearing this letter read, and they said, let all people worship him. That would be like the record scratch moment. All the music drops. Everybody's like, what? What did he just say? Worship him. We only worship God. Deuteronomy chapter five. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now in Revelation chapter 22, John, you may know, wrote the book of Revelation, and this is an incredible thing. This guy got kind of swept into heaven, got taken away to see all of this behind the curtain kind of stuff, right? Like where the, he's got to go see the wizard and stuff. I mean, just crazy cool stuff. And he was absolutely floored by this happening. <clears throat> and he writes this at the very end of the book in Revelation chapter 22. He said, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, it was, it was so extraordinary. that so I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel... Who showed them to me? But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book worship God. So the fact that worship, thank you, the fact that worship was ascribed to Jesus is a very clear statement that Jesus is God. And then he does this incredible thing next where he compares angels and the sun. Right? So in, it says, Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved. Righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of of gladness beyond your companions straight out of Psalm 45. That passage in Psalm 45, you know who it's about? God. But of the son, he says, boom, a quote that is about God directly about God. This is a very clear statement. The the audience of Hebrews knowing the Jewish scripture would absolutely have immediately recognized that he is making the case that Jesus is God. Next, verse 10, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. Pay attention here, this is good. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. You, Lord, of the sun, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Who made the heavens and the earth? It's the very first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. This is a very, very clear and direct statement that Jesus is God. Mic drop. Boom. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things, all things were made through him and without him, not anything was made that has been made. Every single created thing was made by Jesus. That means Jesus wasn't created. He's the eternal one. He is God. Nothing was made apart from him. Philippians chapter 2, this is one of my favorite passages. It's, It's a cool Christmas passage. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to, a thing to cling to, if you will. But he emptied himself, taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the extraordinary love of God. He let go of the comforts of heaven where he was worshiped and praised and adored and he came down to us where John says, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And Paul in Philippians continues, therefore, God has bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord in heaven and the earth and under the earth and every uh, knee will bow. Sorry, I flipped those backwards. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The name that is above every name. There is no name higher than God, right? Jesus is God. He, He didn't hold on to that, grasp on to that, cling to that. He let it go. He humbled himself and came down to be near us. That's what's so beautiful about the Christmas story. It's the story of God coming near to you and I. He continues in verse 13, the author of Hebrews, to make the case that he is the Messiah. So he's the heir of David. He is God and he is the sent one of the father. He is the Messiah. And to which of the angels has he ever said ever, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Straight out of Psalm 110. And that is a commonly used passage and quoted passage to refer to the Messiah. So he is the sent one of God. He's the heir of David and he is God. And then this last verse is incredible. If you've had a long day and been dozing off, this is a good time to wake up. (laughs) Verse 14, this is really cool. Are they not, referring to the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Who is it that's to inherit salvation? Jim, me, you? The angels are a gift created by God to serve us. What? that's crazy. That's crazy. That's so cool. But we are not to worship the created. We are only to worship the creator. And all of us, every human being alive, past, present, and future, every single person has a very simple choice in life, in this world. This is the gospel choice that we all have to choose to trust that God is enough to satisfy my soul, that he is enough of himself and by himself, nothing else. And I am whole and complete. I have everything that I need in him. Or say, no, God, I got this. I'm gonna put myself on the throne. This is what Adam and Eve ended up doing in the garden. They said, God, we don't need you. We're gonna go and pursue abundant life in this shiny, good-looking fruit over here. And here's what's crazy, right? Because God had created all of these things. God had created all of these things, this beautiful garden. And I don't have time to go into it now, but I'm a farmer and I'm picturing in my head the garden before the fall, before the curse had corrupted anything, I'm picturing this garden and I'm picturing fruit trees covered in gorgeous, luscious fruit, not being eaten by aphids and bugs and things like that. And I'm picturing flowers of all kinds of colors in this extraordinary place, this garden. But God says, I don't, this is all a gift for you. Is the created stuff good? Yes, he said it. He made it and he said it is good. But we can't choose to pursue those things for life. Here's kind of a way to think about it. Suppose, my wife is uh, is Kelly. We've been married for 23 years. Suppose I go to great lengths to get her this beautiful ring and I get her flowers because I want to demonstrate my love towards her. And I don't just go to Publix or Walmart to get her flowers. I travel the world to find the rarest, most beautiful flowers ever in existence and I bring those back to her. And she looks at, I set them on the table in front of her and she says, (gasps) Oh. And she says, forget about you. I love this stuff. I don't want you. Give me more of this. And that sounds absurd, right? But that is exactly what we do when we sin. And that's the choice that God gave Adam and Eve in the garden. Enjoy all of this. I made it all for you, but I want you to know that I am enough for you. So just don't eat of the fruit of this tree. You ever wondered why in the garden there was the tree of life, but the opposite was not the tree of death? It was the tree of knowledge. It's kind of crazy. But if you think about it, knowledge is kind of like our way of controlling things, right? When bad things happen to us, what do we immediately say? Why, God? Why did this happen? Because we want to know, we want to know, we want to know, we want to know. Because if we know, then we can control the things that are around us. It's about us being on the throne and having the knowledge and control of what's going on. And so that's why he said, don't eat of that fruit. If you do, you will surely die. So there's the choice before us today, to trust that God's enough to satisfy our soul or to say, God, I don't need you. I'm gonna go pursue life in the created things of the world. Creator versus created. And this is the gift of the book of Ecclesiastes to the church. How many of you have read Ecclesiastes? It's okay. This is not like a, I'm just curious because it's an odd book. First time I read that book, I was like, what? This is depressing and awful. This is terrible. But here's how it's, it's now, it might be one of my favorite books in all of scripture. And here's why. We've always told our daughter, we have two daughters, we've always told them growing up, it's really smart to learn from your mistakes, but it's brilliant to learn from other people's mistakes, And so Solomon, who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, here's a dude that had everything, practically. God allowed him to have all the stuff. And if, if you think about this sentence, if I just had this job, this house, this car, this boat, this jet ski, this whatever, whatever you put in that blank, if I had that, then I would have joy, then I would be happy, then my soul would be satisfied. Whatever you put in that blank, and it's probably more than one thing, whatever it is, if it's not God, it's an idol. And it cannot satisfy your soul. It's not even possible. So, that, so Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes has all this stuff. He had women, power, fame, money, mansions, everything, like everything you could practically put into that boat. They didn't have jet skis back then, but he had it all. And what was his conclusion at the end of it? It's all meaningless. The Hebrew word is hevel. It means meaningless. It means like this chasing after smoke, chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to catch smoke? The harder you try, the further it gets away from you. You can't get it. And when we pursue life and the created things of the world, it's like a hamster wheel that we can, we're just trying and trying and trying, and we can never get there. We can't catch the smoke. Listen to this quote from Jim Carrey recently. So cool. Jim Carrey, the Jim Carrey. I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. God. Don't worship the flowers in the ring. God is right here, and He loves you. The creator of the universe, the one who spoke and stars that make our sun look like a grain of sand came into being. That God made you to hang out with him. He wants to chill with you. That's crazy. That's amazing. Stop worshiping the ring and the flowers and go have a relationship with God. He's right here. So that's the choice that I'm laying at your feet today. And here is the gospel, that good news, the evangelism, the angel, the messenger of good news. And I like to hang the gospel story on four simple pegs creation. Fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation, God made us, and he made us for a relationship, but he said, trust me that I'm enough for you, so just don't eat of this fruit. Adam and Eve said, no, well, we don't need you, God. We're gonna go and put ourselves on the throne. And so they they fell from that relationship. They said, I don't want that relationship. They disconnected the lamp from the life source, and the lamp went out. God is the author and giver and sustainer of life. When we disconnect from him, there is no life in it. We can't find it. So they fell, creation, fall, redemption. From that moment on, God has been pursuing humanity and you and me. And if you think about the things that caused you to be here tonight, that is God pursuing you because he loves you. And that's crazy cool. So what happened is, just like that Philippians 2 passage says, he left the comforts of heaven and came down here. And the author of Isaiah, Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And Paul writes that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might be his righteousness. So God came down into the form of a man. Jesus went to the cross, and when he was punished on the cross, all of our sin and selfishness was punished in that moment because God loves you and wants a relationship with you, but he's a good and just God and a judge that lets a rapist go because they, they, whatever. That's not a loving, just judge. You with me? Sin has to be punished. God did that when he took it on himself, right? So creation, fall, redemption, then restoration. Trusting in Jesus, giving your life to him is not just a ticket to heaven for eternal life someday in the future. Eternal life is right here and now, right? We all crave significance. We create. We want our life to matter. We want our life to mean something. And God did that. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul writes that it's by grace that you and I have been saved, that it's not of our own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of our works, the things that we do, so that none of us can boast. So in God saving us, he even did it in a way that would protect us from our own selfish pride that he gets the honor and glory and credit for it. And all we have to do is trust in him. So he said, it's a gift. There's two important things to understand about a gift. Number one, if I go and buy you a present and I set it in front of you, it's not yours until you actually receive that gift. And Paul writes, same author Paul writes in Romans chapter three, that we receive that gift by faith, by trusting in him. Secondly, is that if I pay for any of it at all, suppose I give you that gift and you immediately take out your wallet and you try to find some money, let me help pay for that and you give me even a penny. It's no longer a gift. It's a really cheap purchase, but it's not a gift anymore, right? So we can't pay for it, right? But then he continues the very next verse. So we're saved by grace through faith, not of our own doing. And then he says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Your life, in Christ matters. You matter. You are here for a purpose. The entire purpose of the planet, you, me, everybody in this room, our purpose is very simple, to know God, to walk with him, and to make him known, to know him and to make him known to others. How many of you think God is good? How many of you think heaven is going to be better than this crazy planet we're living on, right? So if God is good and heaven's better and he loves us, why in the world wouldn't he immediately snatch us up to heaven the instant that we are saved and trust in him? Because you have a significant purpose to go and tell this message, to make him known to other people. That's the good works. And you guys, most of the people in this room, I don't know you, but I suspect you have an extraordinary privilege in front of you to get to walk with the father and take the good news to people at Disney that are on the hamster wheel trying to find abundant life in the created things of the world. And I'm here to tell you tonight, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, get off the hamster wheel. You're gonna keep running and keep running and keep running and you're never gonna catch that smoke. Life is only in God, period. So if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior, please come talk to somebody tonight. We're gonna have some leaders up here at the front to pray at the end. And I'm gonna pray a prayer here. And if it echoes with what's in your heart, it's a prayer I need to be praying every day anyway as a believer. If it echoes with what's in your heart, then welcome to the family of God. You and I are brother and sister and that's cool, right? So let me pray to close us out and see if this prayer resonates with you. Father, my goodness, you are so good. And I'm so sorry, Lord that I've been worshiping the ring and the flowers instead of you. That I ever possibly thought that there was life in those things. I'm sorry that I've sinned in that way, Father. I'm so grateful for your love. I'm so grateful that you died and that what you accomplished on the cross on my behalf was enough to save me out of my selfishness. And Father, I'm excited to have purpose and significance in my life. I'm excited that my life matters. I'm excited that you declared my value on the cross when you said that I was worth dying for. God, restore my purpose. Let's go change the world together, dad. I love you. Pray all of these things in Jesus' name.